0: welcome back what a week this has been quite the week Coma floor my collaboration with wonderwork dropped this week we nearly sold out in the first day which is wild and we currently have i think 15 um orders left or like 15 left cell, which is great. So if you haven't already grabbed your two pack of Coma La Flor, I highly recommend you do it because she's only happening once. She's a once, once in a lifetime baby. So get her, try her, drink her, share her with your friends. Love it. Share with me what you think about it. And yeah, I am really excited to bring you this episode because it is with the one and only dynamic duo, Wonderwork. In honor of our wine releasing this week, I decided to give you an episode with them. I actually recorded this episode about three months ago. I think we recorded it um, in like June as we were going through the process of working on this wine together. And I'm really excited for you to hear this episode. It's actually gonna be two parts. So part one is a conversation with them about winemaking and their process as innovative winemakers in the space today. And then part two is gonna be a live session of us blending this wine, so I'm excited for you to check it out. This episode is also super interesting because I typically have my guests share a bottle of wine with me. In this episode, we decided to do a vertical tasting flight of three different Rieslings that are from three producers, three local producers. Um, the grapes all came from the same farm, from the same vineyard, and were picked only a couple days apart. So it's essentially the exact same fruit, but made in three different styles to create three different Rieslings. And we taste them all at the same time live. So I'm super excited for you to listen to that. I had never done that before. And it was really, really dope to, to try them all and compare them and see how each producer kind of like gives their own spin on each of the wines. So without further ado, let's get into it. Ladies and gentlemen, Wonderwork.
1: So, we're Wonderwork. I'm Andrew, or you might know me as Andy. And this is Uh, Isamu, the other half of Wonderwork. Wonderwork is two uh, friends from Virginia who made it out west, California. Started experimenting with fermentation, with wine, and um, crazy stuff for everybody out there to drink. Yeah, our first vintage was in Virginia. I'm actually from the Bay Area originally. You made it out west. Oh. I made it back.
0: I didn't know that. True. I didn't and know that.
1: I was born in uh, Walnut Creek, and my family moved when I was four uh, to Virginia. So i met at East Salmi in middle school, and we really started hanging out in high school. Did a lot of back and forth. We went to colleges just down the road from each other in Virginia. And I started bootlegging hard slider as a freshman in college mm-hmm. because... I don't know. I don't like asking people to buy beer for me. Um, apple cider, fresh apple cider was abundant. And I looked up on the internet. I don't think I'd be a winemaker if it weren't for Google. I looked up on the internet how to ferment. And I made hard cider with red yeast and uh, added some sugar. And that became a really fun hobby. I got into home brewing later. And when I was looking for something else to do, I was into neuropsychology in school. And the scientific method was... Fantastic background for winemaking, but I was far from it. And then one day in grad school, I was like, this is over. I need something else. My mom actually suggested it. She was like, you know, for, I guess for Californians, it's not outside the norm to think winemaking is an industry and a career. And I was like, yeah, that sounds good, but I don't know anything about wine or winemaking. I only know how to brew beer and you can't make a living off of that. Cue the rise of the craft beer industry. I couldn't have been. You were just
0: three years (laughs) too early.
1: (laughs) Uh, So I started looking into it, and I found uh, you know UC Davis and Fresno State have excellent programs. Um, This was in the economic downturn, if you will, and uh, UC Davis wouldn't have me for the second bachelor's. They told me I could go straight into research, which I was so tired of research. It's not what I wanted to do. I went to Fresno State, and it couldn't have been a better place to cultivate. My winemaking skills, there's an on-campus winery at full scale, large wine tanks, huge vineyard or research vineyard to make wine on campus. Even if you're underage, you get a little waiver that allows you to taste wine and wine tasting classes on campus and grow grapes. And That's the first harvest that I worked was at school at Fresno State. Uh, I picked up a degree in oenology there. And then I moved in with my aunt and uncle who had been living in Lompoc, California on the central coast for gosh, 30 years. They were one of the first people to, to build a house up on the hills there. So I started off making uh, high quality Santa Rita Hills, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, a couple different wineries. And I really uh, learned a lot over there. Um, I, Eventually wanted to do my own thing, wanted to work with more than two grapes, but I didn't really have the the business plan in my head. So I started visiting Isama. We moved to LA, did a job down there, and I started bringing wines down, chiefly Rosé, chiefly Corsican Rosé. And that's why we started as a Rosé-only company in 2017. Really? As Disco Vino. And our Uh, first wine was called Donna Rosé. Named after, of course, Donna Summer, mm-hmm. and uh, inspired by Corsican rose, made from Sangiovese and Syrah. And that's how we got started. We started making different wines immediately the next year. Year one was all rose. Yeah, we're going into what is this, your 11th vintage? 12th vintage? Gosh, I gotta do the math again. It's uh, 12, I think. 12 vintage. 12 12 years. 12
0: 12 vintage. So your first vintage is in school. Yeah. I'm assuming.
1: Yeah, Wow. Um, That's like... And I can't stress enough how good slash important it is that Andy has this background, this technology background, this chemistry background. Um, Because I'm not a winemaker by trade. I didn't study wine. I... Bounced around doing music and DJing for a while. I lived in Brazil and then came back and I went to grad school for for branding and and advertising. Uh, That's what brought me out to L.A. And knowing that one of my best buds from from Virginia was in California, I would go up to San Luis Obispo where he was and he would show me what he was working on at the the wineries that he was at. And then he would come down to the time I was living in Silver Lake. So he would come down to Silver Lake and we would go to Silver Lake Wine um, and he would see a whole another world of wine that was really starting to take foot. So this is probably 2014, 2015, something like this. 2015. Yeah, and that 2015. was 2015.
0: So your methods before the Silver Lake so chapter he's, he's of your life.
1: So he's doing fancy pants. <laughs> was like more conventional, yeah. traditional. Like Central Coast fancy pants Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Interesting. And he comes down to Silver Lake, and I take him to Silver Lake wine, which is down the street from where I was living at the time. And um, we always tell the story, but the owner of Silver Lake Wine, Randy, jumps on the counter, starts talking about doing mushrooms, taking acid, and all this, that, and the other. And suddenly, we, we both sort of realized that wine is, could be different. It could be strange. It could be weird. It could be more our speed. You know, he, you know at the time, I had a girlfriend, and every time she would— Go out with her friends, or leave for the weekend, or something. I I tell Andy come down. Let's go raving. Let's go listen to some <laughs> hard hard techno until six in the morning. Where did you guys go? Oh, all the early warehouse parties. Agatha, Agatha Street. Agatha Street. Yeah, all these we, places. We became such regulars that you know the whole process for a warehouse party is okay. you can Purchase your tickets. Go to the U-Haul van at such and such location between such and such times, and they will give you the real address. We started skipping that step because we knew, like, oh, this looks like a hack of the rave. Like, we're going just straight <laughs> to the warehouse, baby. And we started it. <laughs> so we would do that, um, and then I. So I work. I was working primarily in, in food and beverage. So I was doing branding, and marketing, and advertising in food and beverage for large multinational corporations, which, as anybody can uh, imagine, was incredibly soul crushing. Um, and so we decided to we started talking about doing our own thing. And, and that really was born from the fact that I had a deep, deep trust in, in Andy's ability to not only create wine or create anything, but also for me, it's not being a trained winemaker to explain what was happening. And I, you know, I'm very inquisitive. <laughs> so I asked a lot of questions. I started in really basic terms. It was right. Cute. <laughs> um, but over time you start to learn and, and, um, you know, what I was doing was trying to push his abilities, mm-hmm. trying to push him to think about different things we could do, different, I spoke in, in ideas and concepts and, and visions and sounds, and he would try to translate them. So, you know, we went, right. to, this, we went to this one party thrown by James Murphy and the, the Soul Wax Brothers called Despacio. And Despacio has always been sort of like our North Star. The, what James Murphy and the Soul Wax Brothers do is they spent a lot of money on a very, very high quality sound system. And then they remove themselves from the equation. They hide behind a booth and they play songs that you know and you're familiar with, but on this sound system, they sound completely different. And we were so in love with that and that concept and that, vibe and everything that despacio produced that one day we left and we were like, how do we create a wine that, that feels like that, that captures that high quality well made party vibe that's not high quality well made exclusive snooty not for everybody because Dispasio is ultimately for everybody um, and that's how Disco Hino was born, and that's how Donna Rosé was born and then eventually that's what wanted to work with Despacio was so it's incredibly inclusive like you saw when you said the DJs are hiding in the corner it's not this like look at the DJ look at how amazing this godlike person is it's uh, you're looking at each other the focal point of Vespacia is the gigantic disco ball in the middle and everybody's facing each other and enjoying each other's company it's a Mm -hmm. completely different experience it's the old school discotheque has a better version of it that's the energy that we try to capture. Yeah, it, it it was. It's ultimately our our distributor in Texas, Pangea Selections, Grant Richardson. He described our wines one time as playful yet well executed, or playful and well executed. And that's really what we strive for because that's what Spacio is. There's so much thinking behind Spacio, so much technological know-how, but it's the most stripped-down, bare-bones, exciting party that you could go to, you know, and that's what we wanted to create, things that were really high-quality, well-executed, a lot of thinking behind them, but ultimately ultimately just really broadly fun and enjoyable. You'll hear songs on the Dispacio sound system that you didn't really like that much before, and you'll hear it one night at and it'll be your new favorite song, so it's <laughs> sort of what we do with wine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Think, yeah. think about you've heard of California Reason, but have you heard of it this way? Have you heard or of like Mission this grapes?
0: Way? A lot of people Absolutely. don't lean into Mission grapes ever. You guys right. did um, Bust and Groove, right? Bust and loose. Bust and loose. Bust yeah. and loose. and it was Mission grapes, and it was so good.
1: Mission's hard to work with. Yeah, it's hard to work with. Yeah, we we uh, pulled that one off. That was like the most difficult one imaginable during fermentation and lavage.
0: And that was like a pet knack because I remember it being pet a bit. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I it was
1: slow it being to being carbonate in bottle and it turned a corner. And I think right around when you picked it up, I mean, yeah. it, it turned into something that when I saw it on TikTok in your hands, I was like, oh no, uh, <laughs> you saw me go grab one of those. I need to make sure, like, what does this taste like right now? We opened it Holy up shit. and it was sparkling and dry. And I was like, It was fun It was so
0: good It was really good Um, Well wait so I want to know So okay I first You guys don't remember this obviously (laughs) But I first met you guys At Chainsaw in 2019 I went to Chainsaw
1: Were we pouring wine? You were
0: pouring wine and you were Disco Vino And I've been following Disco Vino Since October 2019 Way before my wine Mind opened And I just like, well, I was like into wine, but I went obviously for the food and I was drinking more cocktails. I had one glass of wine. I don't know which wine you poured me, but I'm assuming it was a red wine because I always go for a red wine. And And actually, yeah, you guys gave me a bottle of that. Like last year, I had one bottle of above and below. I remember that. Um, yeah, so I was introduced to you as Disco Vino. And then I remember, maybe it was like beginning of twenty twenty ish. You guys segued into Wonderwork. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that transition? What what's Disco Vino? What's Wonderwork? And when did it evolve?
1: Uh, Disco Vino started out as a as a singular idea, and that was Donna Rosé. Um, and we had, strangely enough, this is 2017, 2018, we got a lot of pushback. We, I think, uh, nat- I think natural wine or the wine industry at the time was still a little bit conservative. And um, they people didn't want something called Disco Vino on their shelves. And so we had to sort of pivot and rethink. You know, Disco Vino was, was really just a, a singular idea around disco and, and that sort of stuff. But you know, our, our passion lies in everything on techno house, disco, all sorts of stuff. So then we thought, okay, maybe we need to expand this umbrella and put everything under a bigger umbrella so that we can play in all the ways and spaces that we want to play. Uh, a great example of this is when we the first account that we tried to sell Donna Rosé into was Lou Wine, which <laughs> if anybody oh, is in L.A. And, and likes natural wine, has probably been to Lou Wine in, in, in Los Feliz. And Lou is a very um, great guy, very interesting person, great selection, great shop. But we rolled up in full Disco Vino aesthetic. blazes. We were wearing... Our Adidas tracksuits. Pistol
0: ball earrings.
1: We had, <laughs> we, we took a turntable flight case, you know, a case that holds a turntable, filled it with foam, cut out in the foam placeholders for two balls of wine and two glasses, and we overlaid that in purple satin. And we put the wine in there, and we put the glasses in there, and we rolled up, there's somebody in front of us, doing a casing of like four wines out of like a backpack you know like a wine cooler backpack we just had this flight case turntable flight case and we got up and we went to you know (laughs) flipped it open and lou looked at the wines in the purple satin and he looked at Uh, us and was like uh you know nobody we thought but did he
0: try them he tried yeah, the ones. Yeah, he's yeah, very yeah.
1: gracious he's a great guy i don't know how quickly he looked at us i think his eyes were focused downward at our disco case for quite some time i'll <laughs> never forget that look on his face but to us that was so cool and that's how we wanted to present ourselves right. and i think maybe 2017 2018 people weren't there which now is, now discos everywhere right which is, which is crazy
0: to think that like that's only three, four years, right. five years ago, maybe. Right now,
1: you look at now you look at something like bar part time and yeah. SF, and it's like disco ball, everything you mm-hmm. know, like all this sort of stuff, and maybe we're a little ahead of our time, and so Lou didn't buy the wine then. Oh they didn't buy it. No, of course no. not. Oh no. my gosh! It was, it was, it was a, uh, a mutually understood no, without being a no, yeah, verbatim. But um, because of
0: the presentation, or because of uh,
1: the wine. <laughs> The wine was solid. Um, This was at the height of, perhaps, like at the very beginning of the decline of Big Rosé. So Mm. there might have been some uh, wine style by uh, branding effect happening there. But... For whatever reason, it was a note, so I, I think relatively elegantly swerved into the conversation about our next wine that we'll be making, <laughs> right. above and below, as you mentioned, uh-huh. an old vine field blend from 140-year-old Mataro on and Zinfandel, planted in own roots, 40 feet sand, at the Sacramento River Delta, and he was like, that sounds great, let me know in your next one. He was gracious. It was, and you were like, "All right, oh, fuck,
0: we thud. gotta find that wine." <laughs> yeah,
1: it was. It was tough, but you know what? Uh, we, we we walked back to uh, the parking lot, and, we saw him and he saw me. Goes, "How do you think that went?" And I was like, uh, "Not good. Not, not good." But you know what? You take your lumps. You're gonna hear now. That was our first commercial wine tasting of our own wine, and I don't know. It wouldn't have been right if the answer was hell yes, guys. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because mm-hmm. the next tasting was, hell yes, guys. Absolutely. We went to Hilo. They just opened up in Culver City. We sat down with Michael. We pulled out the flight case with the purple satin and the balls, and he yeah. leapt backwards and said, this is the coolest thing he's ever seen. Um, they've been big supporters ever since. Yeah, I think two months later, we were spinning records in his shop, tasting everybody on Donna Rose. Yeah. That's awesome. And that, that's how the world works. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah, I think it took our took us a couple vintages to figure out who we were, what we wanted to be, where we wanted to go. And I think Wonderwork was the expression of that. Wonderwork is a, a cave in South Africa. The name of a cave in South Africa, I guess, it's an Afrikaans, but it means miracle. Um, hmm. And it's the, the cave that has the earliest signs of, human cooking, archaeological signs of no human way. cooking, in which wow. man manipulated nature for uh, not only sustenance, but pleasure. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of resonated with us, and we were like, okay, everything from here on out, Wonderwork, House of Fermentation, all the different ways in which we're going to explore the world of fermentation, and, and not just wine, will be will be through Wonderwork. And that's um, how it sort of transitioned into that, or morphed into that, but we we still make scovino. Um, we make a bunch of other stuff now, and it's just sort of like uh, it, we feel more comfortable in our skin doing what, knowing that what we do, people dig, people pick up what we're putting down, and um, it just feels more comfortable to sort of get weird with it.
0: So, so wonder work is like. The greater idea, right? It's like Absolutely. the house of fermentation, all Wonder the things that can happen.
1: Yeah.
0: And Disco Vino, the origin of that. It still exists, like you I said. I think
1: Disco Vino is like the basement of that house. The
0: basement. But like, are you planning on, like every vintage, you're going to release something through the Disco Vino label?
1: Or it's sort of like Disco It's its own wine. It's a party that pops up. Mm. sometimes it doesn't mm-hmm. open for a couple years you gotta know sometimes there's a summer full of possible yeah sometimes that's cool discovino is raging this year um, we still make some wines that we tag as discovino they're generally summery they're shimmery they're a little poppier uh, a different texture mm-hmm. than some of
0: And, like, maybe it's not really, like, the climate right now to be sipping on some really sparkly things. Well, we also just, you know, we have a lot
1: of things you want to do, a lot of things you want to explore making. And um, I feel like that's just like any other artist or producer, you know, they go through phases. Mm -hmm. They spend two years doing this and then another two years doing another thing. You know, last vintage, and into this vintage, we we took uh, Free Your Mind and we expanded it into Free Your Wine. So we had Free Your Mind, Free Your Body, Free Your Soul, which uh, harkens back to another, um, you know, techno track, something for your mind, the body, and your soul. And that's how we got the idea. And and then we really explored that direction. We're continuing to explore that direction. And now we're, you know, this vintage... It's a fine day for your body, for your mind, light, which became a piquette. And then in 2022, there's even more stuff. So it's just, we're just constantly trying to explore. You know, it sounds weird to say things like push boundaries, but we sit around and we taste wine and we taste everybody's stuff. And we sit there and we come up with ideas. And I, you know, I continue to work in. Food and beverage, and, and Andy is in distilling mixed you know, makes gin and, and vodka and a bunch of other really great products. And we try to pull all that knowledge together and think about how we can change what the idea of maybe a wine is. We're not so married to you know estate you know, state wines, or you know this mm. has to be this single varietal from this vineyard. You know we take things that people give us and we play with it and, um, you know, Free Your Mind Light's a really good example of that. That is a, a, a Los Angeles piquette through and through. We tasted everybody's piquettes. We researched piquettes a lot. We made some piquettes that didn't work and then we landed on this one and it's, you know, it's the quote unquote son or little sibling of Free Your Mind pumice from Free Your Mind, Carignan and Riesling, but then we added heirloom mohawk and hibiscus from Hacienda out there on Pico and Culver um, and grooming sourced from our friends at Tsubaki and Echo Park and that opened the door for us and thinking about, oh, we can really get playful, we can you know mix quote-unquote genres um, and now we're going sort of full-bore in that direction of how can we bend rules, how can we bend um, ideas of what this grape or that grape is supposed to taste like or look like or or feel like?
0: Yeah, I feel like that's kind of what the future of wine should be. I think, like, there's a lot of producers who, it's like, I feel like they want to prove that they are capable of doing the estate-style wine or the really, like, classic classic sophisticated in air quotes sophisticated versions of whatever these varietals are but really like you can still be sophisticated and you can still be elegant and all those things but like evolving the practice of whatever fermentation means right like mixing like new new things and new flavors like you like you were saying like with the um with the ume and like all like just like different flavors that are like turning what we knew to be wine into something else and then making that the standard for the future and each like generation of winemaker is hopefully creating like new methods or new tasting spectrums or whatever
1: yeah totally.
0: into the future to create something just
1: and i think something that happened maybe a couple of years ago when we Really transitioned into the world of natural wine, we started to get bogged down by the dogmatic approaches to natural wine. You know, when people sort of preach things like low intervention. Mm-hmm. It, nothing added, mm-hmm. nothing taken away. Nothing added, nothing taken away. And we thought that was the rules that we had to play by. That felt like taking something away. It <laughs> right. took away innovation and creativity. Right, right. exactly. So if you look at our wines, they are. Natural, by all means, we only use natural processes, natural ingredients, um, gravity, things like this, but they are, for the most part, a lot of them, um, very high intervention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, intentionally so. Mm -hmm. in intervention, in our case, means looking for natural means of bringing more to the story, bringing more to the flavor profile. When we started making the piquette, we, I mean, it's the first piquette we made, and it has the and on added. Those are intentional selections to boost the acidity level of that to make it a more shelf-stable piquette, because piquette was originally something that's consumed within a week of it being made. It's mm-hmm. not shelf-stable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when we decided to set out and make piquette, we were looking for natural sources of acidity, and it's hard to find anything more acidic than ume. Unripe fruit. right? It is ripping with acid. Right, if you eat right. it directly off the tree, you're never going to try it twice. So, this is why it's you know, made into liqueur or made into uh, syrup or, or soda water, mm-hmm. and soft drink. Um, and then hibiscus is like, it turns out, I did the research after we added it to the wine. Um, it, it turns out it's like the most complex acid profile of any, any produce on this earth. Different acid species present in it, meaning like citric, um, uh, tartaric, ascorbic. I don't know. Yeah, there's a ascorbic kind of thing. It even has its own acid species named after it, called hibiscus acid. Mm-hmm. And it's a tremendous thing to bring to the party when you're trying to boost the acidity level. And so we stumbled across these things around L.A. You see, agua de Jamaica everywhere. And we became friends with Masienda, a local shop that you import into The words masa and tienda, it's a masa shop, mm-hmm. and they import uh, heirloom masa and heirloom corn for masa, fresh masa production, oh, masa wow. arena, the dried stuff. Yeah. And we started making these amazing tortillas at home because we got into Masienda and their offerings, and they all of a sudden on their site had heirloom Oaxacan hibiscus. To read a little bit more about it on the store profile, that, you know, commodity hibiscus can be adulterated, dyes is added. Right. If you're ever brewing Agua de Jamaica uh, hibiscus tea and you notice some red color just like leaching out immediately and it looks too mm-hmm. good to be true, sure, it probably mm-hmm. is dye. Mm-hmm. Um, and heirloom products are always more flavorful, more interesting. So we started working with Macienda directly to use this product in our PCAD. Where did we come across Ume first? So at Tsubaki. Um, Courtney Kaplan at Tsubaki, she's owner and, and also a sake song, and We always talk to her about sake. And she made a house with Meishu. And um, we, I always just talk about how Ume has a really distinct flavor profile. Um, it's really an interesting, it's complementary to wine in a lot of ways. Uh, it has a little bit of spice, a little bit of this acidity to it. And um, we just asked her, where does she get hers from? And she's like, there's only one or two farmers in California that actually grow Ume. And that's where all the Japanese people in Southern California and Korean people to make basil, um source their product. So mm-hmm. then we just started working directly with those farmers. And so our winemaking season actually begins in April. Everybody else, it's you know, July, August, mostly August mm-hmm. when, when grapes start coming. For us, when it comes in in April, so we begin processing fruit in April, getting it ready so that by the time October rolls around, uh, we can make our, the piquette that we want to make. Um, and I think it's just this perfect uh, example or iteration of having an idea, thinking outside the box, but then thankfully... You know, Andy has this technical background, this chemistry background that the ideas that we come up with, we can sort of reverse engineer and try to figure out how to make, you know, if we were to rewind it just now, he said, oh, I did the research on UMA afterwards. To do the research to understand what it is in these fruits or these sources of of flavor that we can really use or impart or make complementary to the grape ferments that we're doing is really secret sauce to making something that is unique de- delicious and tasty and that we can say this is our way of thinking our way of doing stuff our way of um, presenting flavors um, that otherwise you might not be able to coax yet. or you right. might not be able to, to know what to expect from but you know this knowledge base is really important I really not go without it um, if, if you have uh, fruit, for example, that's abundant with citric acid, you've got some Britannomyces problems cropping up later in your vinification. I can guarantee it. Uh, Britannomyces is a it's a yeast, often called a spoilage yeast in, in our realm. Or, it's or not. Brett, wait, yeah, I I Brett for short. Brett, for short. Um It is present everywhere, just about fruit. Mm-hmm. It's ubiquitous. If you have a lot of citric acid, it can live on that citric acid alone. Oh. And it's responsible for these barnyardy, and funky aromas that in a certain concentration are lovely and a hideous concentration are awful. Right. And if you start just willy-nilly blending in, you know, this fruit, that fruit, you're going to run into some problems with, with in that particular instance of, of including more citric acid. So it, it's funny, in, in enology school, they told us, like, and the natural wine scene wasn't super prominent back then. They told us, look, some people in faraway lands make these things called natural wines. You are to never <laughs> make these. They will not turn out good. Your life will be spoiled, um, uh, just like your wine. And um, being a told lifetime of that, knowledge
0: flushed on the toilet. Being,
1: being told not to do something is the surest way to get me to do it. Right. And, uh, um learning sort of the reverse, how to reverse engineer natural wine for it to be successful every single time. You have to learn the other side of it, which is the conventional training and technology mm-hmm. programs. It's invaluable, and I would not make wine without at least some coursework in ology. It's really important, right? Yeah, because what people forget about natural wine is that you aren't using a lot of technology, or a lot of synthetics, or a lot of chemicals, or a lot of industrial processes to fix things. We work in a winery where there are a couple of conventional wine brands. And they'll start a ferment and walk away for two weeks mm-hmm. and come back. And and if there's an issue, there's too much VA or something like this, they'll just dump a bunch of product in there and quote-unquote correct it and fix it. And that's how they end up with the flavors they want. But for us, working in natural ways, we have to babysit those ferments. We have to be there every day. We have to think about, is this the right time to... Move it. Is this the right time to transfer? Is this the right time to press? Is this the right time to to add? You know the hibiscus teas. Is this the right time to you know? And it's um, it's really it's really I, we sort of think that this idea of nothing added, nothing taken away does not really sort of sometimes do justice to how you negotiate with nature. Mm -hmm, You steer something in a natural manner towards where you want it to go. So it expresses the concept or the idea that you're trying to achieve. And um, at least for us, we're not so much the let it do its own thing, whatever happens, happens type of people. We have a, a really worked out idea or concept that we're trying to achieve. And, and um, you know, because we want to present something really interesting, really unique, um, I would think that that's how we're going to achieve that. It's really important to remember that doing these things naturally requires a deep understanding of what you're dealing with.
0: um, Yeah, I feel like that is, in the movement of natural wine, it's easy for people to be like, we can start a brand. We can start, like, we can make wine. But without, like, there are people who have literally dedicated generations of their family to like studying and making and producing wine in a way that like is is really honed in. and I feel like that's rare to find producers today who are willing to like go back and like do the work to lead up to the excellent bottles rather than just being like, let's just produce a wine and slap a label on it and make wine well, there- for the sake of making wine.
1: We have to think about the fundamental differences between how wine is produced in North America and how wine is produced in the old world, right. or the new world versus old world, right? Right. If you are an Italian wine brand and you have, you know, your father worked the land, or your grandfather worked the land, or grandmother, you know, mother, and um, you're so familiar with that fruit and that vineyard during those seasons, and you understand, you can... Pull a grape off the vine and taste it. And understand when it's ready. You sort of, through osmosis and through time, have really learned uh, how to respect that terroir and how to get the most of that out of that terroir. But you may not be formally trained in, in ology or anything like this. But there's a level of knowledge that you have and that you've built up that allows you to produce things naturally in a, in a way that is. For the most part, a luxury in the United States. Right. Most California wine producers don't own the land that Mm -hmm. they source fruit from. Mm -hmm. And most often not, they're moving around like we do from source to source. And we have to have a way of understanding the fruit in a little bit more detail. In a predictive fashion. In a predictive fashion. Because it's very rare for someone to be like, oh, I've been on this land for years or 30 years even right. and I've made the same wine over and over and over again to the point where I know what to expect and I know when something's off and I know when something's right and I can do it naturally. Um, it's a lot more, a little bit more challenging and there's definitely, it's not to say there aren't old world producers or, or people making wine in, in France and Spain and Italy that are experimenting and, and doing new things but yeah, um, it's just a it's a fundamentally different form of Path to making wine, uh, California specifically, than than say in a place like Italy or Slovakia or Georgia. There's this thing my mom always says, I think I'm saying this right, it's a ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And there's sort of a commonality there where if you've been a multi generational wine producer, you know how to prevent the bad stuff from happening. You know, okay, it's a damp vintage, we're having rod issues, this is how we navigate. Alternatively, in our paradigm, you can read up on the read up on the science, mm-hmm. and, the, and you can similarly steer your vehicle in the right direction. But it's a preventative winemaking paradigm, and that's what's important, that you don't have to scrub away the defects and faults with these industrial techniques that we're trying to avoid. Right. And that's where we find uh, natural wine to be the place for us, is we don't want to do those corrective measures. We certainly didn't inherit a multi-generational wine life, um, so we steer the wine in the right direction, see where it's going a couple days before it goes there, and you know that involves some risky decision making, but it's uh, it's really important to be preventative rather than curative. Right. Um, you know some of these things like how you top barrels? We let some stuff grow on the surface of our wines. So we don't top the barrels every day. And day. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. we know that that's safe. That's another way of making wine. Mm-hmm. And we don't, you know, kill it with sulfur to to keep it tasting fresh when really it's experiencing a lot of oxidative stress. There's a very fine line between being uh, low intervention and being completely out of control. It's, right. 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 Yeah. Event. Yeah. For sure.
0: Definitely. And
1: and you can you can pick up on that mm-hmm. out in the world. You know, mm-hmm. I think for us. Being able to, to start with an idea and work towards that idea, start with a concept, a name, a feeling for what the wine should should be like, um, allows us to to work in such a way that we um, we always know what we're striving for, and we don't ever feel necessarily lost or
0: confused.
1: You know, you know, okay, this is this is the flavor that we're going for. This is the idea that we're going for. Let's just keep. Steering in that direction, and we have the, the tools of all the different things at our disposal like all the different techniques and methods that you can use, or in our case, ingredients you know, other fruit or spices, flowers, you know, things like this.
0: You guys are like chefs, but of wine, <laughs>
1: yeah, totally. Honestly, um, I as Islam mentioned, I work as a distiller at the Spirit Guild in downtown Los Angeles, and we produce mainly gin. And that background of tinkering with flavors is tremendous in informing our, our winemaking process. And we're beginning to work increasingly so with aromatized wines, as they're called, wines with other natural flavors added. Um, more on that later. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> so, that, so that leans into aromatized wines is considered like a distilled Product. It's considered or sort is it of like, like a, a fortified. Vermo-
1: it, it's it's not necessarily fortified. It's it's not necessarily distilled. It's wines with something else. Um, in the case of our piquet, the ume and mm-hmm. the hibiscus are the aromatizing agents. There are additional flavors not present in the grape source material that are included right. in our opinion, contributing to the successful construction of a flavor profile greater than the sum of its parts.
0: Okay, we are recording. Speak into your microphone.
1: Cool. Hello? Yeah. Riesling. Riesling. All right, so the first bottle uh, you brought for us. Where, no, uh, you brought that one. We did? Yeah. yeah. Oh, Adam gave it to us. Yeah, so this is Vonda, California, Kickflip. It's a 2021 Riesling from Zamala Vineyard, in Seco. i uh, heard a couple of things about this vineyard. It's actually like the cornerstone of our wine program, so cheers, Adam, and we're if so you looking forward to trying those Yeah, for everybody listening We have three Rieslings Including one of our own From our spring-summer collection uh, It's a fine day So today we're tasting through Three of these Rieslings Including our own That uh, all come from the same vineyard We picked maybe within a week of each other Yeah, it was within a week um, I think we got in a couple days earlier Not that it's a contest <laughs> It's certainly not I hate that contest stuff uh, but, yeah, this is a 2021 Horizontal. Yes. Cheers. Uh, it was a baller racing. Super fun. Okay. So, first one is Vunda California. Adam, <laughs> or Louis, uh proprietor of Vunda California. Also, Good Luck Wine Shop, hmm. Aldenna Beverage. Um, i known Adam for a few years now. Has his winery out there in Pasadena. Pretty cool to see wine being made in Pasadena.
0: Yes, it is. For us this Pasadena is- Lokes, we love it.
1: Oh, you're from Pasadena? Mm-hmm. Awesome.
0: Yeah.
1: Great. Uh, nose. Uh, it feels mineral or correlative of mineral on the nose. So, uh, not everybody agrees that you can smell minerality. Uh, I think you can. I, can. Mm-hmm. I think Adam told us he like asked somebody, reason producer. What to do and I think it's just direct press and then straighten the barrel. He said he had a Riesling guy, right? A yeah. Riesling guru.
0: Who who like showed him the ropes of Riesling?
1: He showed him the way to the Riesling. He's um, a Riesling tattoo. No way, yeah, really. Riesling. Of the leaf.
0: No, like it says Riesling.
1: Oh
0: uh, cool, cool. That's more <laughs> Tattooed on him.
1: Um so yeah, I guess we sort of had a Riesling guru. We started making wine under the roof at Sturm Wine Company and he's like Sort of between him and Brampton Um, He works largely with Old Vine Riesling, especially the War's Vineyard in Siena Valley. Really awesome Riesling. Um, I don't think we set out to make as complex, worldly Riesling as he does. Our style is decidedly more fun, simple, mm-hmm. finish the bottle. What are we doing tonight? This is good.
0: So i like getting it's like, feels like very
1: ripe. Right. To me,
0: not like ripe grapes, just like whatever business is that?
1: What yeah, I, I think it's got tremendous body that sort of tells a story of more ripeness than it actually mm. is. But you get a
0: lot of zing.
1: There's a lot of zing. And I think it's yeah. uh, it's really important to bring up. So Arroyo Seco, ABA, Southern Monterey County, the coolest place that we buy grapes from. Uh, the fruit hangs a really impressively long time. In fact, I, I saw some data a couple of weeks ago that said that Arroyo Seco ABA, southern Monterey County, has not experienced any uptick in temperature averages, meaning not experiencing any warming mm-hmm. regarding global warming yet, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. That's um,
0: so is it, like, located kind of – is it, like, in some kind of, like, valley or, like, protected by the yeah, elements so, in some way? So Arroyo
1: Seco, it's a dried-up riverbed. So, you know, there's, like, a lot of wind all the time, and mm-hmm. – um, the, the temperatures just stay low. It's the mm-hmm. other side of the coastal range from the ocean. So you're, you're getting some ocean cooling, but that is mitigated somewhat. It's just, for one reason or another, an extreme, extremely cool place. The acidity in 2021 was exceptionally high. I think we harvested three weeks, three and a half weeks later in 2021 than we did in 2020. Um, with acidity levels around that of Champagne, north of 10 grams per liter, uh, just prior to harvest, so we were waiting for the acidity to die down just a touch, ended up being the highest acid we've ever experienced there, just because that's what the vintage wanted it to be. Um, we typically try to pick that vineyard as soon as the acid's starting to drop. It never really dropped. I think we came in uh, at like 9.5 grams per liter of TA, which is quite high, uh, and reason can handle it.
0: What is, what is TA
1: for your listener? So this is titratable acidity. You have two measures, essentially, of acidity. There's TA, which is uh, grams per liter. and Then you have pH, which is uh, logarithm. Uh, so they tell slightly different stories. It's really complex. We don't need to do chemistry one here. <laughs> but um, I like to look at TA. A lot of people like to deal in pH. Really, we look at all of these things and try to arrive at a decision. But for my money, TA is a really good way to, like I said earlier, compared to champagne,
0: right? Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that's a salient way to discuss Hmm. Well done Adam Yeah Yeah really good man Uh can we try the bomba Yes Yes So bomba Is Steph Sloan Who we just met At Nat Diego Hello Hey I believe, Steph I believe this is her first cuvee She made this at BDC With Adam Using the same fruit Um But I believe a Completely different approach I don't remember The description Uh um, at the wine fair, but let's check it out. My, my opening? Yeah, that's cool. It has cool. the striations. strands. Strands. Mm. I don't think we can see. Adams is in a, a darker colored glass, but this feels cloudier. The mm-hmm. glass does it look cloudier It looks kind of similar? Yeah, this is the BDC.
0: Okay. Similar. It's like pretty similar.
1: Yeah, I think but this is a little almost cloudier. more straw.
0: Yeah. Straw like. Yeah. It's a
1: little bit a of a funkier. A little funkier, a little more tannic. I don't know if it's just. Would the, we call
0: this maybe like a skin contact?
1: I forget how she made it. I don't think it had a tremendous amount of skin contact, but I do feel more grip. Down, down. about y'all. I do through that, let's see, the body's a little heavier,
0: mm. definitely funkier. Like,
1: the city's just... not as high, mm. probably, more, probably more skin content.
0: I would say this is this one was really aromatic. The kick mm. to me, it just seemed a lot,
1: Absolutely. yeah, different texture here for sure. I think that's the biggest mm. difference. Um. Wow. Acidity, relatively similar. Um, it's a, a really glossy kickflip and a really grippy bomba both mm-hmm. in, a, in a pleasing way. No.
0: How would you describe grippy to a listener who's maybe not familiar?
1: Um, so, like, the way that your tongue interacts with the roof of your mouth, I think, um, if it's able to slide forward as you're, I don't know, licking your chops, <laughs> um, <laughs> You know that that's lack of grip. If it's starting to stick to the roof of your mouth as you push it forward, as you lick your lips, um, that is grip. What we would call tannic grip um, or astringency. And uh, yeah, it generally has to do with um, how much skin contact you had. If we're talking about the same harvest date and the same fruit, the differences in in grip are going to be on skin contact and how hard you pressed. Um, also, how you manage your cap during fermentation. If you were on the skins, did you do punch downs versus pump overs? A punch down being mechanically pushing the cap down as the skins rise to the surface with a punch down tool. Um, a pump over being pumping juice from the bottom over the top to wet the cap that's rising and then submerge it. Um, but both of these, I don't think, were on the skins that long. So the difference in tannic grip is really interesting. You have to ask the winemaker what's up. Yeah. Maybe we'll do that this weekend.
0: I feel like Bomba is that pour for friends, party Riesling, and this kickflip maybe you would have with like a meal or a more.
1: I feel like Bomba's a little little bit more on that quote unquote addy
0: stuff.
1: I think I'd pour a kickflip for my dad. Right. Bomba for.
0: Right. I mean,
1: Definitely. Yeah, that's fascinating.
0: Which I think is kind of. I mean, I don't know too much about Steph's like history in wine, but Adam comes from like <laughs> old school, Som fine dining, kind of like classical wine training, and I feel like you see that in his wines. Mm-hmm. Even though his wines are still fun and experimental and like youthful, they he you can tell his background is really in that like old school psalm way and steph i feel like is like the new generation of wine person right now not that adam is old generation because he's very young (laughs) but (laughs) but (laughs) has like a different path probably in wine and that comes across which i think is cool it's a cool Um, way to have
1: we already said that this is more bombastic yeah there we go
0: bombastic Bombastic. (laughs) I think um, she said that Bamba means naked in Tagalog. Tagalog, yeah. There is a
1: naked person on the
0: roof. There's multiple.
1: multiple. Oh, right. There are
0: four. Okay.
1: Um, I'm pretty sure Adam also said his reason guy was German, so hmm. that might be the case. But I think with a lot of these reasonings and what you'll find with reason, especially California reasons, you give it, a, you give it some time and model, and that then changes a lot and, blah, and it develops. Complex. And so I would say let's um, revisit the in of the year, see what happens. Totally. Yeah. Or longer. I mean, Riesling is one of the best wine varieties to age, owing that largely to the in- acidity inherent in the variety. And um, I think we mentioned earlier our, our buddy Ryan Sturm. He has some extremely successful Rieslings. And I think we see them through a different lens because we're offered back vintage bottles from him mm-hmm. that he's been holding in the wine cellar. And uh, one of my favorite things in the world is to, to grab a bottle that's been stored at its origin in the cellar. It was produced for that long. There can be no interruptions in the storage requirements for temperature, humidity, et cetera. It's just handled really well. And there's some like magic thing to it too, to mm-hmm. the wine just leaving the cellar now. Um, and that, that's just Riesling expresses different things in time in bottle. It's really, really good to lay it down, even if they were designed to be party ones.
0: Right. You know,
1: that's right. very much, I think, what we're going for. We're going for emptying the bottle today. We're not thinking about putting this in our cellar for 10 years. But if we did, I think we'd like what mm-hmm. come out. Okay, so we made a direct-to-press Riesling this year. Uh, we've never done that. We've always done something different with this fruit it's half of our flagship wine you might call it for your mind that's a skin fermented riesling co-fermented with carbonic macerated Carignan. that's a really different wine in the past we've made an off-dry riesling from this vineyard uh, another vintage we made a sparkling riesling from this vineyard and uh this year again with the acidity being so high we thought look Simplify, simplify this let's present it as direct to press this should be be here to do it and we um, there you go we uh, we ended up making like Capri Sun you know was, we were thinking about how to make something really fun really juicy still 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 white you know I these days, not a lot of people are gravitating towards still whites. It's a lot of skin contact, a lot of orange, but we wanted to make one that was high in acidity, fun, fruity, and it really came out tasting like Capri Sun. And We are sitting there, thinking about it, and kicking around the word Capri Sun. Uh, we're both 35, and for the first time ever, we realized that Capri Sun is named after the Isle of... Capri off the coast of Italy.
0: I definitely <laughs> and didn't even And,
1: think and about when that. you're like a seven-year-old crushing them little pouches, you have no idea what Capri is. But then you think the about it The island was is named
0: after the juice, in my mind. <laughs> right, right, I was right, a kid. right, right, <laughs> right, right. Exactly.
1: So when people go take a boat to Capri on the Sorrento Coast or whatever, they're like, oh, yeah, like the kid's juice.
0: Yeah. Or when um, they go to Capri Club in Eagle Rock.
1: Right. Exactly. <laughs> so Capri Sun is the sun... <laughs> on the island of Capri, off the Sorrento Coast. It's just like, that sort of vibe It's really also what is now found in the wine. It's a fine day. You named it It's a Fine Day. Um, after a 1992 rave track by the group Opus 3, um, you scan the back of the QR code, or the QR code on the back of the label. It'll take you to Spotify to listen to it. Um, Really classic rave song. You spend time uh, deep in the dark depths of a, of a party listening to techno or house. I'm pretty sure you've heard this song either in remix form or on its own. But it's a fine day. People looking the. <laughs> that's what it sounded. That's what it felt like us doing when we drank the wine. When we were tasting through the wine. Um, so we lifted the remix album cover to create label with our designer, Anton Buzard, and um really love it. It's probably, out of our spring-summer release, one of my favorites. Um, I think we've gotten lots of really good feedback from a lot of people about how it doesn't taste like what they expected it to taste like. You, know, you say Riesling, people have a certain preconception about what that is, um, and I'm sure you've seen it. On TikTok or other places where people instantly leap to Germany, but this is a California California. reason through and through. It tastes like sunshine, tastes like California sunshine, like that Capri Sun, figuratively and metaphorically. Um, That's why it's a fine day. You Mm -hmm. drink it, it feels like it's a fine day.
0: You get that, you definitely get that California vibe. I feel like german culture in general is very like structured and rigid and very Cold. precise in like its practices and that comes across obviously in its wine practices as well but california like we're a lot more chill we just kind of go with the flow and like you know we want things to be like nice and sunny and fun and relaxed and like still delicious and you, you get that yeah and you get that here
1: we like to say that uh, there's a kiss of sunshine this mm-hmm. wine, and that's the quote-unquote California Riesling character we will often pour this, as Isabe was saying, we'll, we'll get some feedback like, oh, okay, so it's California Riesling and then we'll pour the taste of it and we'll say, oh, but it's bright and acid-focused. California Riesling can have sort of a connotation of being pineapple juice, being mm-hmm. overly fruit-focused, right. lacking acidity, and I don't know. Sometimes you hear California Riesling and it's a bit of a... It's not really a compliment. Um, I think we harnessed... uh, I think all of these wines harnessed California Riesling in a new light. And they're all really successful. I think I do taste a little bit more acidity in this one, and it's a fine day. These picks, I think, were five days apart. Mm -hmm. It's amazing to me how there's really a gradient of of flavor profile here. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't necessarily want to call it the winemaker's fingerprint that we're that we're experiencing, but it's definitely um, a varied outcome in, mm-hmm. a, in an incredibly pleasant fashion and this is cool. We don't often get to have like experimental control and oh. evaluating a site in a vintage like this and, and I was gonna the intricate say yeah details of harvesting.
0: This is, yeah, like, this is, I feel like it's interesting to see how grapes from the same place, same, like, corner, same, more or less same dates. And, like, that's when you see the difference is, like, the pick dates, how that can reflect in each bottle. And then also, like, the methods that the winemaker uses on their own are obviously going to also, like, impact the final product. But... It's really interesting to see that variation. Like, they're all pretty much from the same moment. Right. So, it's, yeah, it's really cool to Chemistry's see that variation. slightly
1: different, pretty much the same moment. And then it's all down to the vinification. Mm-hmm. What Adam did, what Steph did, what we did. We need to uh, recreate this again next year. I know I have a couple of friends of ours who were buying from this vineyard. Uh, it's really quite the collection of. Small, independent, largely natural mm-hmm. winemakers working from Zabala Vineyard, and I think that it'd be hard pressed to make a lame wine out of Zabala. Reason uh, the fruit quality is just spectacular. Uh, Louis Zabala is a tenth-generation California farmer, if I understand correctly. Wow, and that's pretty wild. Yeah, and it's just amazing. And what's more, he's just an incredibly awesome person to deal with. Um, you know, in the chaos of harvest. Going to Zabala, you can count on Lewis inviting you inside, making you an espresso, and frothing the milk for you. It, mm-hmm. It's really a, a nice uh, retreat from the from the chaos that is harvest, and he and Jason Melvin do a fantastic job. It's certified organic. It's a large-scale vineyard. It's really well-run and managed. It's an absolute dream to work
0: with. Do they produce any of their own wines?
1: I don't believe so maybe some small run uh, stuff but you know there's an absolute roster of uh, wineries that work with their fruit um so I think they enjoy you know seeing it come to life in, in other people's cellars
0: yeah and it's also it's cool like these are all made within 5 miles 12 miles, 12 miles? Pasadena
1: to Oh we made ours, ours in right? gilroy yeah. <laughs> oh, I thought you made yours in
0: LA. No, no, oh, we produce
1: in Garlic City, baby. <laughs> yeah, never no, mind, I, so thought you, I thought you were producing. Gilroy is closer to Monterey than yeah, to Pasadena. In Pasadena. In Pasadena. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, Arroyo Seco, um, where this vineyard is, is the southernmost source for our program. And everything else that we source is uh, further north and really in all different directions in California. And we lucked out in finding a custom crush facility in Gilroy that's relatively central to everything. Absolute props to uh Bomba and to Hunted California for getting Zabala Reason down to LA. Down <laughs> I don't envy that commute. That is really yeah, it's tough, tough drive. Um we've never had to contend with uh driving the one oh one with three tons or more on the mm-hmm. back of your truck in the morning. That's brutal. Um it's not easy uh, getting it to Gilroy either, but, yeah, I mean, getting through to L.A. is a serious, serious thing. Mm-hmm. All around, very good. I like everybody's stuff. I yeah. Like the different personalities coming through. Definitely. Um, I'm picking up a, a tea like a, an Arnold Palmer, I w- a John Daly, if you I
0: can. I could see that. I John see a Daly? John <laughs> Daly. <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: that's more well, a speed. Because of
0: the, like, lemonade-y kind of feel yeah. to it, but then, yeah, there's, like, a little... Like, <clears throat> I guess like black tea. But yeah,
1: exactly. But a, a also interesting. Nondescript like, oxidized tea.
0: Cause I would, yeah. Cause like black tea wouldn't, I wouldn't like jump to thinking that that would be like a note yeah. here. Maybe I would think white tea first or green tea perhaps, but no, not really. Cause green tea is also kind of like grassy. Totally. It's like more grassy. Yeah,
1: notes. Not green. Uh, what is green? I'm getting a little lime skittle.
0: Lime skittle. Let's
1: see. Lime skittle. Yeah.
0: Matt and I have been talking about lime flavor a lot recently. Don't know why?
1: It's a fascinating flavor profile. He uh, really unlocked a, a soapbox uh, in, <laughs> in my mind um, because lime leaves are so incredibly flavorful and yeah. aromatic. And then the zest is one thing, the juice is another thing. The type of lime, Thai limes are completely different. Right. Uh, ripeness, you know, you get a lime at the grocery store in the middle of uh, February. It's a totally different thing than when they're glistening. Citrus oils.
0: Uh, there's an absolute range. Of lime. I tasted lime leaf in a wine I had on Monday. I can't remember which wine it was now. But I said that to Matt. I was like, "It tastes, tastes like lime leaves," and he was like, "Lime is just Fruit Loop, green Fruit Loop flavor." Because oh. that's also like a like your mind will trick you into that like candied. But like anything that's lime flavored automatically goes to like the artificial lime, Bud Light lime, lime. But yeah, lime, or lime. like or like um, what is it? Like like lime flavored tortilla chips right. that like hint make, of lime, hint of, yeah. li- hint of lime, hint yeah. of lime, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <they're, laughs> yeah exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah, it's it's certainly. And I was uh, getting like
0: authentic lime leaf, like from your backyard tree. You grab the leaf, absolutely, rub the break it open, get I, the oils going.
1: I think with uh, being an excellent fruit, one of my favorite in the kingdom of fruit, becomes the possibility to be bastardized into the wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, if it's that popular, uh, it can be compromised. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is cool. I hope both Vinda California and Bomba Wines continue to make their reasonings and continue to show them off. It's just cool to see. It's a really great, great, really great thing that California can do uh, somewhat differently or differently from what everybody associates with reason, so.
0: I think this is a really good moment to talk about um, the importance of the revival of white wine. I feel like this is something oh, okay. that... Okay, like,
1: what is that? Well,
0: I feel like, okay, as a consumer... As a um, wine girl on the internet. (laughs) Wine (laughs) wine girl girl
1: on the internet. Wine girl
0: on the internet. Like, I see what's popular, and what's popular is an orange wine, which is a white wine, but, you know, they don't know that. Uh You you have no idea how many times I've had to explain that orange wine doesn't come from oranges, and I'm honestly getting so fucking (laughs) sick of it. I'm like, at this point, you guys, like,
1: we have a how DBS you, plan to make an orange wine with some oranges included, just to be to really really contrarian jerk at the party.
0: You just call it orange wine. That's Zag. the title of the line, orange wine. Orange. Um, but yeah, no. I, I've
1: heard this. I've heard that I've, people recoil when yeah. you say, "Oh, white wine." It's something we've considered when you know starting to plan for production. Like, how viable is white wine? We hear a lot of other stuff too, like, "Oh, I only drink red," or "Oh, I never drink red." sort of runs the gamut but yeah there are some people out there who are especially in the natural space maybe uh you know so focused on orange yeah
0: that that white
1: has gone away
0: orange wine or
1: yeah chillable
0: reds like that's what everyone wants that's or you know you'll have like a pet nap that's like a color that's not
1: I'm not, I'm not sure if a revival is happening of white wine. I'm,
0: no, I'm saying we like we should you should advocate it. for the revival totally. of oh. the I, white I, wine. I, I, I think
1: white wine has gone from things like buttery shard and, and marble, Sauvignon Blanc and things like this that were so doctored and predictable. I actually think skin contact white is, is sort of an answer to buttery shard where the it's an, an adulterate is not the right word but it's, it's a manipulated white wine in such a way that it develops characteristics that aren't associated with the white wine but <laughs> still white wine. Right. Those flavors are from the bacterial secondary fermentation where buttery flavors are created, right? That's not a fruit character that's not really like look in small doses, cool, that's part of wild fermentations but in Directed almost those distilled versions of butter first. I mean, pretty pretty famous, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think that's sort of why orange has really taken. It. It's almost like you know, the children of the people who like buttery shards now like orange. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and somehow you're right. Maybe still whites got lost in the mix, but um, maybe people in the U.S or in California, aren't doing enough with, with white grapes. I, I, I don't know if that's really the case, but you know, in the Europe, there's yep. incredible things happening all the time. I think aromatic white grape varieties fill the void of needing that uh, secondary flavor profile, be it, you know, butter and Chardonnay, or be it, I don't know, texture and other things in orange wine. The aromatic white grapes, like, I don't know, what's this what's Riesling, Alvarino, mm-hmm. Muscat, things like this, there's that secondary oomph, that wow factor, that extra perfume that comes from it that makes it categorically different from a simple, like, Mountain Chablis box wine that's just pretty much like, okay, acid, alcohol, water, we're done, why yeah. mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. Giving it
0: like a depth.
1: Yeah, and perha- perhaps the reason that this is executed better in places like Italy are just the varieties that are available. I mean, we really look high and love for things like Friolano, Brecque de Tufo, really hard to find in California. I was going to say, how how Falangina. is that in... I,
0: yeah, I feel like the, there's like a handful of white wine, of white grapes in California that at least I'm, I'm aware of. I'm not, you know, in the mix, so I don't really know. But like something like that, like these Italian grapes or like Greek origin... Grapes are, like, almost impossible to find here. And Greek ones especially. Yeah. I mean, Which all, is all interesting because I feel like there's potential in terms of climate for Greek grapes. Or is it soil? That's more of the issue.
1: Absolutely. No, there, there's a tremendous potential for, you know, throw a grape that hasn't been planted yet in a new soil and see what happens. There, there's nothing in soil, in my opinion, that, you know, limits, like, don't you dare plant that there. Let's mm-hmm. try it out. Mm-hmm. I think of more in terms in terms of temperature as to like is it probably going to survive. Right, that's really the limiting factor. But in I feel mind. like in California is open for business. And yeah,
0: there's so, there's so many different like terroirs and climates in California alone, but also really similar stuff to Mediterranean style climates. So I feel Absolutely. like it's not impossible to find a place. Also, like, what if you did some stuff in Catalina? I don't know Catalina. That's like.
1: Dude, Maybe it's too cold. There's, that might be
0: too cold, but no, like it has Greek vibes on the island. There's coastal
1: aspects everywhere. I think one of the limiting factors, actually, if you, if you want to dive deep, is, is temperate uh, uh, climate. Uh, you have some vineyards in California that have issues because they are too close to the ocean and in a nice little warm pocket where vines don't really go dormant. And that's mm-hmm. very important. It's bad news if a grapevine wakes up in the middle of winter on a warm day and says, time, question Mm -hmm, mark. mm -hmm. Let me pop my buds and see what's up. And then it starts pretending like, okay, it's the growing season now and then it gets cold next week. You frost the buds. The vine has used a lot of its stored energy from the roots to produce those bud breaks. And now you're in the middle of January. It's cold. You used a lot of your stored energy. What's going to happen when bud break is really supposed to happen? A few weeks later, you're looking at a poor crop. So there are some places in California that's a little too nice year-round, you do look for places that have discernible winter. Um, But again, the potential in California is tremendous. There should be more of these grapes planted. Unfortunately, the large wine market limits some of this. There's way too much Chardonnay, way too much Chardonnay, way too much A. A lot of it comes down to what the market dictates as with so much in our world and Chardonnay and sort of things reign supreme mm-hmm. in grocery stores across the United States. So that's what you're gonna get. Um, but, you know, speaking of terroir and climate, like look at Texas, you know, Alberino. Um, even people, there's people out there making great stuff but these varieties grown in the islands of like, what is it like Fredericksburg and all these places in Texas, and, and that's cool stuff is happening. Uh, There's a reason that there's so much Tempranillo out there. There's not really Mm. much here in California.
0: Yeah, I actually just got two bottles from... um, So I think they produce at the Austin winery. Soto. Yeah, they sent me two bottles. Yeah,
1: I was just in Austin and and, uh, doing a tasting. Our our homie, Tatanka, shout out to Tatanka, at Cork and Screw. He was really talking those guys up. Saying that they're working on cool stuff, so yeah,
0: I'm excited. I think they started with like maybe cans or some something of the sort. Like they had like a canned line.
1: Yeah. They had a cool canned cat, right? And that looks like I a, think so. Yeah, I think that was them. That's awesome. awesome. Oh, that was I'm
0: Austin Winery. About. But I think Soto also had or like another label that was their canned um, collection. But um, yeah, they just sent me. They sent me a Tempranillo, and then they sent me like a glue glue. It's called like Texas glue glue. Yeah, I'm really excited. Is it day? good?
1: It's
0: good. It's good. Okay, cool. I'm. Yeah, they're in. They're in there. They just got them yesterday, so I'm super excited. Texas is like a really interesting. I've never been to Austin. I don't know much of the. You should come with us. Yeah, in I'm October. Su- oh my god, I'm super down. I was telling relief. Matt I want to go to Texas in the fall because obviously right now it's too hot. Oh, it's um, horrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure it was it's like, way too hot. M- yeah, peak. Heat. Oh my gosh! But in the fall, I yeah, I'm like. Super. I'm super down. Like down to go and check it out. I still
1: like, have never been Texas. I'm absolutely dying to go.
0: I've only been to San Antonio,
1: which was. San Antonio's got a good wine scene. Right San here. Antonio wine? Is that right here? Uh, That's a different San Antonio. San Antonio. <laughs> I know. Yeah, they've no, got a cool history, but, uh, but yeah. Austin, uh, yeah. Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, San Antonio, um, a lot of little towns on the outskirts of those bigger towns.
0: One of my dreams is to do well. It's like one of my like dream vacations I want to do is a road trip from like I want to do um, San Antonio, Austin. I don't know if Dallas is part of the triangle, but there's like a triangle of like three major cities in Texas.
1: Yeah, I think it's Austin, Houston,
0: Dallas. Maybe no. Well,
1: something. Uh...
0: I don't. I I know San Antonio was like part of it because when I went to San Antonio, I noticed that like all of these. I don't know. It's like I I was driving through the outskirts of San Antonio and it was just like time stopped aesthetically and (laughs) architecture wise Mm -hmm. in like 1960 something. And like all of the buildings are just like really old and like the signage is really cool and like everyone's cars are also somewhere like weirdly really old too. And it was just this like blast through the past. And I was like, it'd be really sick to do, like, those three cities, drive through them, do, like, a road trip for, like, two weeks or something and go to, like, Marfa and just, like, oh, we got, see what's up in fucking we Texas. got friends in
1: Marfa, too.
0: Yeah, Marfa's also really interesting. I want to check that because I've never been. Um,
1: that was a clown to go. We always think of like um, our biggest inspiration coming from music and things like this is Pet Shop Boys. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. You think about Love who Pet the Pet Boys. Shop
1: Boys were, you know. Um, Chris Lowe was the quiet, studious type, working on the working on the music, playing the. Synth. Is that <laughs>
0: Yeah. And he, and he also played,
1: you know, horns. He played all the, he played all the instruments. Isamu and, bought me a Boy London hat as Chris Slow often dons, <laughs> as if to say, you are the, the synth. <laughs> I am the front. And, then, and that's great. And, and then I, Neil I Tennant, Neil Tennant was a pop writer. The st- he studied pop music and wrote uh, for Smash Magazine about pop music. And the two met and they had a lot of, philosophical discussions about what pop music is and how to make great pop music, and they went about doing it in a completely different fashion than than everybody else. Where they really dissected um, what makes a hit song, what makes something groovy, what may, they, you know they they still talk about to this day. They'll go to like they live in Berlin most of the time, and they'll go to Bergheim and just watch the people dancing and raving, and think about <laughs> yeah. and think about like. The club environment and like how that's what they want to still be a part of and right. still be in, and they went to New York and they wrote songs in a sort of a researchy manner, and they created you know, West End Girls, you
0: know, yeah, best
1: selling uh, pop records uh, from the UK, and um, and they continued to be pushing the limits and being weird and and you know reconstructing pop from from all these different elements that they figure out. You beat the lyrics and the melody, all this sort of stuff. Um, they've never had to explain it or apologize or, or you know, they're not Madonna, they're not mm-hmm. George Michael, you mm-hmm. know, they're not pop stars. Yeah. They're never meant to be that, but they love the genre so much that they experimented and created these massive hits. You know, and for us, they represent, like, um, that sort of direction of things you know towing a line between being studious and being weird and and, and um creative its mm-hmm. certainly never being boring never being boring right you know? um, and so we always like to think about how can we do that both for wine or for fermentation yeah, yeah there huge
0: what do you guys feel is like the the future for wonder work or for or the movement in general, the wine movement that's happening in general around have the world. I never any
1: idea what everyone else is going to do, and that's part of the fun of it. Is you know, reading in the papers, so to speak, you know what others are doing. Um, for us, Orpiquet is a sustainable product. group. Mm-hmm. it's a uh, welcome um, arena for experimentation, and we love that. We gravitate towards that. So corkpiquette, for So you're going to see. Two additional features in our portfolio in 2022 vintage. Um, more aromatized wines, more flavors. Hopefully in the future, hybrid grapes. That's something that needs to happen for the sustainability of, of viticulture. You know, Vitus vinifera, European wine grape, is not going to fare very well in the next 15 years of California agriculture. We need to find more drought-tolerant alternative varieties. Um, and we like the flavors of these grapes that are sort of non-traditional or non-traditional. Mm-hmm. Um, we keep talking about how can we make a wine out of Concord grapes, how can we make something really well, just grape juicy in a playful way? Right. We want to start leaning into that direction of forgotten grapes, grapes that haven't been made yet.
0: I have one in there that you can also Where? maybe open. Uh, American Wine Project.
1: Wisco, oh, Wisconsin.
0: Wisconsin. It's called yeah. Wisco Disco. I've been Ooh. sitting on it for months. Speaking of other disco, <laughs> But it's up. in there. Open we can, it can totally up. open it. it. Yeah. Speaking um, of disco, yeah. yeah exactly. Heck? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We
1: see disco in up. Yeah. It works now. The, yeah. The tides have turned. Um, it works. Why didn't uh, it
0: work before? That seems like that's just discussed. a. So now yeah. there's literally disco everywhere. Else. Who doesn't love disco? It was the
1: strangest thing to us because that's what we were asking. Who doesn't love disco at the time? But you know what? how yeah, it's, that's how the market works it's fickle it's not it's always, like in it's like in 2007 when all the indie kids discovered dance music Right, now they're all dancing yeah it's just right. kind of like oh it was always there
0: right know? right I feel that way about like boleros I've always been like really obsessed with like Edie Gourmet mm-hmm. those ponchos oh, like all yeah. of that is like my shit that I like I have OG oh, records.
1: Dude. Oh, she's love my favorite.
0: I have OG records that were my grandparents in the 60s oh, that I
1: like you know, took Linda from Ronstad them. Does a lot of that too. Really? Yeah.
0: Well, all of a sudden TikTok loves boleros and like loves well, the you can, like you can even and I'm say, just kind of like I love that she's having a resurgent and she's having her her moment, of course, uh, because I love her, but also like yeah. y'all, I've been on that shit. Exactly. I've been adding that to my Freaking videos forever, and no one liked it. So it was say trending.
1: Like is kind of
0: I like Ravina a lot. That, yeah, mm-hmm. she's R&B,
1: but she's yeah. really in that
0: the neo jazz. Yeah, yeah neo jazz for sure. We feel that that was our neo experience. soul. I guess yeah.
1: That was our experience with disco very much. Like, look, this has been around a long ass time. Mm-hmm. Come on, mm-hmm. this is great. Enjoy it. I mean, why no, would not you want drink for a, something that channels? Also, disco?
0: right. Well, and but. So that was like really revolutionary for wine right in the in the moment, like at the time, probably in two thousand seventeen people weren't associating experiences or moments or memories or yeah. anything else outside yeah. of wine to it was, wine it was still
1: very much yeah. like oh we're from the Central coast and we, we right it was like taking and that and like classic approach, approach just blah, 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 to like selling yeah, their wine very now
0: perceptive. you yes. you read like I'm obviously super guilty of like doing like. Like reviews like that, but you, you read wine descriptions today in the last four years, and they're like, I mean, you just look at the ones that I wrote. I wrote one th- about a wine that I
1: had was, in Mexico, and I'm at, like, what was I even fucking yeah, talking about? He was saying, like, the farmers market, people are describing. I was buying that I way. was buying table grapes this morning at the Santa Monica farmers market, and uh, candy snap grapes from the Murray family farms Do you see Matt there? No, I, I went super late, just barely pulled it off, and I felt like such a loser for being there late.
0: <laughs> no, that's like regular person time. <laughs> exactly, I know. I
1: don't have the cart, and the, you know, like Matt, the sale account. Matt
0: so. leaves at like 6 in the morning to be there before 7. Like exactly.
1: No, it was very lazy, Um, but I, I, I went to Murray Family Farms. It's my favorite place to buy fruit. Mm-hmm. And um, they had the candy snap grapes, and they were being pitched as um, – like strawberry jolly ranchers and now it's like i tasted one and I bought, sounds you know, I like bought a vino to exactly. me and i'm thinking like you know i get a little the carbonic lineage, <laughs> i get the lineage of this grape like it's very similar to the really like hyper aromatic almost honey candy like flavors and scarlet royal uh, with the princess and, and other table grapes that i know and love especially for my time in fresno mm-hmm. um just picking bits full of fresh table grapes on the table or lecture halls like yeah. we have to gorge ourselves on these things um, and I was like well, this, these are classic table grape flavors classic as of the last you know, 20 years but they're being pitched like natural wine like right. natty juice like Strawberry Jolly Rancher, bro. Get all the
0: notes. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: all right. Like, yeah, it's there. I get it, but it's it, it's different and it's cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that's definitely a new pitch on a uh, Scarlet Royal. You know, right, or right. Sort right. of like, exactly you know, must get bred into, I assume it's must get bred into the typical red pink table grape lineage. Yeah. Cool. i down for it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think um, you guys were innovating before innovation was even happening
1: it's it's just funny seeing seeing everything sort of come together i mean yeah. all at the same time we have a good relationship where we push each other and where the ideas if i have an idea or he hears a song or something we can send it to each other because this is this is mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. or an album cover mm-hmm. i wish i wish there was a fly on our wall more often with the, with the, with the mm-hmm. you know with There's never a moment where we don't have a huge list of ideas that we're trying to do. Um, We've talked to a couple other winemakers, and just like sometimes, just make it up as go, like Mm -hmm. whatever I get. Oh, oh, we can never do that. Yeah, We can. We can can never. We have to have an idea because that's the only way we can. We know. We have to set a direction and move towards it. Yeah,
0: and I think it's also because you guys are like two minds that are both very different, right? Mm -hmm. Like you come from like different backgrounds with different perspectives on the same product and like without a North Star or some general like goal for the final product, you have to like, you need that in order for like two or more people to like
1: go in the same direction. It doesn't always work this way, but more often than not, I feel like we reverse engineer the lines that we starts with one mm-hmm. of us often of is going, what if we make a wine called Bustin' Loose? <laughs> what is that? And I'm like, all right, all right. I feel it. I get it. Yeah. So I think it's sparkling. I think it's mm-hmm. sparkling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then we just start, start, start riffing, and then you know, maybe the idea dies for a little bit, and then maybe we're out to dinner sharing wines with friends, and then someone some try this. This is Bustin' Loose. This like, feels this like this is Bustin' Loose. Mm-hmm. We can't get that, but we can get this. Uh, all right, so a little spin on that, and again, it has to be sparkling while the wine is born, and I think that helps us then talk about the wines or connect with people because I just did a tasting in, in Austin, and I described the wine our our spring summer release like that, you know, where I was like, it's a fine day's Capri Sun, it like it evokes that and everybody around, is like, hey. and then, you know, it's like. You start talking about for your body. Your body is, is punchy, skin contact, orange. It has this, it has that. You can talk about farming or, or the grapes themselves, the characteristics of the grapes, what they bring to the table. But when you, when you start to describe a feeling, and then people pick up on that feeling, and then that's what they start to remember, and that's what they start to relate to. And that's it's not necessarily oh, it's from Clarksburg, ABA, and it's, you right. know, it's an equal blown of Pinot, Blanc, Pinot Green Sauvignon Blanc. You know, what they really gravitate towards is, oh, that makes me feel this way. But that's, we try sure. to do with, with flavors and with ideas because I mean, that's how we naturally think of things.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and Andy, I, Andy has a really great memory for recalling flavors. And it's I, the only thing I can remember. And I, <laughs> you know, I worked in food and beverages. Beverage for so long, doing product development and innovation, and it's sort of it's, it's kind of a, a similar thing. You know, you have to you have to meet people where they already are, and by creating a feeling or an idea that complements a name, that you know, when, when I showed for your, I described for your for your mind at the tasting, and then showed people the label, and I showed people, the, and then they tasted it. All three of those things make sense in their head. Right. That labels for your mind, the juice is for your mind. Mm-hmm. The way it's made is for your mind, and suddenly for them, it's like, oh yeah, the whole like even if I didn't know what this was called, you taste it, I taste it, and you say what the name of it exactly Yeah. And that's what we we you kind know?
0: of Well, and also I feel like most people, unless they are encyclopedias of wine or sommeliers or some in the industry, that way. They're not going to have this sort of just like, oh, this is from this region, this year, this type of... Like, they're not going to have that, like, immediate, oh, I taste this. I know exactly all the stats of the wine. Right. Whereas, like, the average consumer, me, or anyone else who's buying your wines, they're going to taste it and they're going to automatically go to the feeling. This reminded me of that time that I was on the dance floor with my friends and -and so-and-so did whatever. Like that's more. And
1: that's rewarding. Like a fun, yeah. That's fun more exercise like fun Like you take, take ushers nice and slow. You take the instrumental, just the music. And you tell someone that song's called "Nice and Slow." they big like, "Yeah, yeah. more mm-hmm. courses." <laughs> you know, or you take the lyrics from the chorus and you go. That song's called "Nice and Slow." Seven o'clock on the dot. Th- you know, so yeah, like, yeah. That's exactly that that's that's what our wine should be. You know, right. The label the name. The juice.
0: And that, my friends, is the end of part one with Wonderwork. Isn't it crazy how I met them in October 2019, randomly at a pop-up. I didn't even really meet them. I just bought wine from them. I didn't know anything about their wine. And here we are, literally exactly to the day, three years later, releasing a wine together. That's nuts. Also, apologies, this was the first episode that I recorded with two guests and only two microphones, so three people and two microphones, so the audio may have been a little spotty in some parts, trying to figure out the best way to group podcast, Um, but yeah, come back soon for part two. And as always, if you love this podcast and you love this episode, be sure to share it with your friends. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at please on TikTok also at please, and follow along on my newsletter by subscribing on Substack, masfinoplease.substack.com.